How's this for sound? Just testing. Anybody? Can you hear? Everybody hear? Everybody can hear? Okay. Usually we do the refuges and precepts when we start the evening, uh, Dhamma talk evening. Uh, but this evening, because Sayadaw will be talking about them shortly, we'll do them at the end, basically. <laughs> so, welcome. <laughs> I know you've all been um, warmly welcomed by Chris and by Kathy earlier today. And for those of you that don't know Asayadaw and me, there are a few here. Uh, obviously, this is Asayadaw Vivekananda, <laughs> and I'm Marcia. And I'd like to really warmly welcome each of you uh, up here in these high mountains, the Rocky Mountains of New Mexico, welcoming you to this five-week retreat that Sayadaw and I will be teaching together. And it's wonderful to see quite a few old, not old or young or in between, <laughs> but <laughs> old friends is what I was going to say. Uh, old friendly faces, friendly faces, and some new wonderful friendly faces as well. So it's it's great to be here with you and be here with you spending five weeks in a quite a unique and special way uh, in our culture. As we enter into retreat, each one alone and also together as a group, we're creating or actually co-creating a temporary village, a, a spiritual practice community. We come together in what Sada Upandita has called a Dhamma family. As we begin this period of commitment to exploring, cultivating, and deepening our inner life through exploring and cultivating and deepening our understanding, our insight into the nature of things through our practice, through our meditation practice. It seems that for many people there's a tremendous amount of time and energy spent, or actually maybe more accurately expended, cultivating an outer life doing things, producing things, acquiring things, going places, being somebody, becoming something. These uh, next weeks, these next five weeks, will be quite special and unique in that none of this is really important. Or will it be asked of you in the ordinary ways of the seeming requirements and expectations of the world. And I know all of you have practiced in retreats numerous times. 
But maybe for some of you, uh, this particular approach to practice uh, might be relatively new for you. And I'm sure that many, if not all of you, know the experience that arises for many of us at the onset of a retreat. The sense of entering into sacred space and time. Of entering into a sanctuary. Both within our surroundings and within ourselves. And for me, whether I'm teaching or entering into a period of intensive personal practice, there's always this feeling in my heart of entering into sacred time and space, both within my own mind and heart and within the space around me. Last evening, I walked into this meditation hall and as I was walking in, I just stood still for a few moments, feeling and seeing and enjoying the sacredness and the beauty of this space. Up here in the high mountainous area during the late spring season right now, there are so many ongoing changes occurring within uh, all of the life surrounding us. The incredible diversity and natural rhythms of life happening all around us here. The weather and all of its changes. The ongoing changes in the light. The myriad forms of life, the community of beings that we share this space with the trees and all of the other manifestations of plant life and the air itself. All of this constantly changing, beginning and ending, birthing and dying. This natural world so close around us, so easily available to connect with. It's really a great gift that we're not separate from, a gift that holds us in itself. This natural world is quite a wonderful teacher of the perfectly natural fluidity of diversity and change that just simply is. It's a mirror of the truth of ourself, our nature as nature. And considering that nature's really no problem to itself, no problem to itself in itself, we can learn from this mirror of naturalness, the just isness, the just beingness, the absolute and open hearted presence of this perfectly natural world. I think it's really no surprise that humans are drawn to places like this. Places where untarnished nature and beauty are so readily accessible. I know that I, myself, and many of us experience a kind of unfettered, open-hearted connection 
in moments of simple, clear presence, when we really take the time to truly arrive, to truly arrive and be, to just simply be. So for instance, with the late afternoon light or the early morning sunrise or the changing sky colors at the close of a day or just simply sitting and walking outside and really truly sensing the particulars of how late spring displays itself in small and in larger ways. And of course, along with any of this, moments of a silent, direct, clear, and simple presence in the body, the mind, and the heart, any time of the day, any time of the night. One day in her 92nd year of life, I was out uh, with, for my, with my mother for her daily walk. And she stopped for a few moments during this particular walk. And she stooped over and looking silently and, and quite intently at a flower that was very full in its blooming, very full in its liveliness. And after a couple of moments of giving her full attention to this flower, she stood up and she just simply said, it's great to be alive. Probably to each one of us, in our own ways, has come some unexpected, unsuspected, and maybe even exceptional moments during times of a simple, clear, unfettered attention. Moments of what we could call spiritual attention. And the natural world is often the place where this happens for us most easily, at least at first. Sometimes in these moments of spiritual attention, it's as though we fall through ordinary appearances. We fall through our usual habitual selves into an intuitive place of the true nature of things. Our mind and our heart open with a clear, more precise receptivity. A sensing and seeing in relationship to how things really truly are. This, we could say, is our practice. Also in a place like this, and especially during these warmer seasons, people come here to reflect and do inner work, to explore, to investigate the nature of things. There's quite a bit of a accumulated wholesome energy in this place, a really wonderful and symbiotic and expanding energy that we're both partaking of and that we're also adding to. So how incredibly fortunate that we're here. 
during these retreat days we have the great gift of being taken care of and supported to practice in a very beautiful and simple way. All of our basic needs being met. While you're here, life is pared down. It's simplified for most of you, or maybe all of you, to varying degrees from your usual daily life activities, demands, and all the seeming needs. There's really not much to do over these next weeks. Sitting, walking, eating, hearing, meeting briefly each day, alternating with Sayadaw and me, spending a bit of time each day with your yogi job, sleeping, and most importantly, cultivating a clear focus of attention and bringing this attention to your particular experiences of body, mind, and heart. So, compared to the ways of the world, there's really not very much to do over these next weeks, which is a very good thing to remember, because some of you may have such a strong habit of keeping busy that you may just go on creating all sorts of things to do just simply out of habit. So in this light, one of the things that we're practicing while we're here is renunciation. And in this case, renunciation meaning letting go of busyness and letting go of the usual distractions that you use, the usual distractions that you engage in to try to relax out of all the busyness. It's a great gift, this renunciation from busyness. And as each of you well know, it's really not so usual to take time to engage our energy in this way, to really simplify our life and spend time looking inward for five weeks, to come to a place to really just simply be, not to become anything or anybody, and not to fill up the mind with more stuff, but again, just to really simply be, connecting and looking inward, looking directly at your experience just as it is in the moment. And so we begin in a kind of sanctuary, being here together in this place of safety and protection, this place that holds and engenders deep respect and acceptance. It's truly a valuable, very valuable gift that you've each given to yourself for these five weeks and that you also give to each other simply by being here together as a Dhamma family. For just about everyone, there are many different mind states that come up at the onset of a retreat. 
you may have noticed in your own mind. Maybe excitement, nervousness, worry, delight, maybe relief. Lots of energy. Lots of energy moving through one's body, one's mind, and one's heart. Even for people who have sat many, many retreats. For me, uh, in teaching or beginning a personal retreat, many of these same flavors of energy move through my heart and mind and body. It's human nature. Entering into something new. A little added energy moving through the body and the heart with many different tones to it. It's just our human nature. And really how very fortunate it is that in fact we are embodied as we are in human form. This precious human existence, making it possible to practice, making it possible to be able to look within and to cultivate a pure, kind, and balanced mind and heart with the possibility of liberation. Liberation that clear insight into the nature of things brings. We're actually quite a small minority here on this earth. In this universe, in fact. And who knows beyond. So think about it for a moment. For instance, insects are much more prevalent than humans on this planet. A friend in Taos who uh, owns a plant nursery told me that there are 200 million bugs, as she put it, per human on the planet. 200 million per each one of us. Wow. So how fortunate, in fact, to be embodied in the way that we are. This human mind and heart and body are really the most conducive towards developing kindness, compassion, joy, equanimity, and the great gift of understanding, wisdom. Because of the particular mixture that each one of us has of both pleasure and pain. We could say there's just enough of each. (laughs) Sometimes a little more of one, sometimes a little more of the other, and at times maybe some big handfuls of one, and seemingly not much, if any, of the other. But in truth, it changes. It changes back and forth within a week, daily, and even within moments. So really, this human realm offers the best conditions that we could ask for. There are beings that primarily primarily live in what could be called the lower realms, where the intensity of suffering is so great that it's impossible or 
nigh unto impossible to develop the wholesome qualities of mind and heart that are needed for practice. And I'm sure that each one of us here have been in those lower realms at times. And so we know that place of tremendous fire and contraction, that place where it sometimes feels impossible to be present with our experience, where it might seem impossible to connect with goodness, acceptance, kind-heartedness, joy, compassion, or with any degree of equanimity, let alone wisdom. And then, of course, there are the higher realms, what are sometimes called the higher planes of existence, where sometimes everything just seems so blissful that there can be, sometimes in this place, little inspiration to practice. And maybe you've tasted this too, at least for moments, where it all seems perfect, or just about perfect, for a moment, or maybe two, or maybe for a little longer. And if we have a practice, it might fly out the window during those moments. We forget that, in fact, life isn't always so blissful, that we don't always get what we want, that life doesn't really always go our way, so to say. In the blissful moments, it's easy to forget that we still have our spiritual work to do. So this realm that we live in most of the time, this place where we experience both pleasant and unpleasant, this is the place of our practice. This is the place where understanding the true nature of things unfolds and blossoms. This place of our precious human existence. It's said that if the world, if all the world were water and a wooden ring one foot in diameter was thrown upon the water and blown about by the winds, that a blind turtle surfacing once every hundred years, would put its neck through this wooden ring more easily than one can obtain a precious human existence. We're a rare species within the enormous breadth of life, of all the life forms on this planet. There's an ancient teaching that says, those who have a precious human existence with all of the conditions and opportunities and blessings in place to meet the Dhamma and to practice the Dhamma, to practice the way of the truth, to practice the way of the heart, that these beings are as rare as daytime stars. And so, here we all are, a room full of daytime stars with a wonderful spread of weeks ahead of us, a time of 
cultivation and discovery, a time of exploration, purification, and understanding, which some of the time may not be so easy and, in fact, at times may be quite challenging. But all the while, it also includes the incredible potential of bringing forth understanding, insight, and illumination, calm, joy, and equanimity. As we enter into this period of sustained spiritual practice, there are a few specific supports that are very readily available for you. So now I'd like to take a look at and I've mentioned a few of these, and so now I'd like to take a look at another of these besides the support of simplicity uh, that I've already spoken of. And then soon Sayadaw will speak about the other supports. This next support that I wanted to explore briefly is the special gift of silence. This silence that very gently holds us in itself. Silence is really quite amazing in certain ways. It doesn't expect anything. It doesn't judge. Silence is infinitely patient, boundlessly spacious, open, allowing, and accepting. This container of silence that everything comes out of and returns to. And of course, within the silence, there are sounds, all kinds of sounds that arise and pass. And sometimes we interpret sound as noise. I think it's important to note that this is an interpretation And notice it. Watch it. Is this or that sound noise? And what happens if it's noise? Are you relaxed? Is your heart and your mind open to simply receiving, to hearing the sound? Or is there a contraction? Some form of aversion, maybe. A feeling of resistance or maybe a feeling of being disturbed. If it's just a sound, our our relationship to it is just simply and directly connecting, hearing, and knowing. Knowing the quality of the sound, which you may perceive as pleasant or unpleasant, along with the arising and passing nature of the sound itself. And quite likely, you won't always have this relationship to sound. So with an open heart and open mind, just mindfully notice. Notice your relationship and response or reaction to sound and noticing without judgment in the midst of silence. I think I can honestly say that 
and as many of you know for yourself, that most people by the end of a retreat, and very often somewhere along the way, feel that silence is one of the most precious aspects of retreat time. Because it holds everything, but doesn't hold on to anything. Everything just simply comes and goes in the spacious, patient acceptance of silence. And again, the key here is that you don't have to be anybody. You don't really have to be anybody special. You don't have to be a somebody or become a somebody. You just, again, simply be. And it's really quite a relief to just simply be. Some people have said that within silence it feels as though all of the windows of the world, all of the windows of the universe, of life itself, have been thrown wide open. When this is our experience, we may have a sense of freshness, as though an open-hearted receptivity and a fresh clarity have been let in. Silence is where we learn to listen, to really listen, where we learn to sense, see, and understand the true nature of all things. And I always like to explore silence a bit at the beginning of a retreat because it's really so much more than just not talking. And sharing some words uh, from John Muir now, the naturalist and environmentalist John, John Muir, he said this, I only went out for a walk and finally concluded to stay out till sundown. For going out, I found, was really going in. One seeks solitude to know relatedness. Then the unknown, the unarticulated, the unpredictable, the uncontrollable appear as protectors of truth, protectors of the present. So all of these wonderful supports that are here for us through our retreat, the simplicity of daily life here in retreat, the ambiance and the availability of the natural world surrounding us here, and the silence wonderful supports for us. So thank you for listening. And uh, now Sayadaw will offer his welcome and guidance.
So I too would like to you know, welcome all of you to you know, this uh, you know, five-week retreat, and uh, I would uh, like to express my uh, gratitude to uh, Marcia and uh, Chris and then uh, Kathy forward you know, the invitation to you know, teach to co-teach together uh, with Marcia. I hope that uh, we will you know, make good use of our time here together. Now my part uh, is uh, to explain about uh, the three refuges and uh, then the precepts and a bit more and uh, let's do that by first uh, uh, taking, we'll start uh, with the Namodasa, we'll do that together, and then followed by the three refuges, namely taking refuge in the Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha, and then finally we'll take the eight precepts. Namodasa Bhagavata Arahata Sama Sambodasa Namotasa Bhagavata Arahata Sama Sambodasa Namotasa Bhagavata Arahato Sama Sambodasa Buddham Saranam Gachami Dhammam Saranam Gachami Sangam Saranam Gachami Dutiampi Buddham Saranam Gachami Dutiampi Dhammam Saranam Gachami Dutiampi Sangam Saranam Gachami Tatiampi Buddham Saranam Gachami Tatiampi Dhammam Saranam Gachami Tatiampi Sangam Saranam Gachami Panati Pata Viramani Sikabadam Samadhyami Adena Dana Viramani Sikabadam Samadhyami Abramacharya Viramani Sikapadam Samadhyami Musavada Viramani Sikapadam Samadhyami 
Suramiraya Majapamadatana Viramani Sikapadam Samadhyami Vikala Bhojana Viramani Sikapadam Samadhyami Natcha Gita Vadita Visukadasana Malaganda Vilepana Tarana Mandana Vibhusanatana Viramani Sikapadam Samadhyami Ochasayana Mahasayana Viramani Sikapadam Samadhyami Please repeat after me. Idame Silam Magga Fala Nyanasa Pachayo Ho to Abamadina somebody. Marcia has certain spoken of support, certainly for our five-week-long five, long, five week long retreat, certainly here at the Columbine Inn, and uh, allow me to add a few more supports. The first uh, one being the refuges. Now, we've just certainly taken refuge in uh, the Buddha, in the Dhamma, in uh, the Sangha. Now, it is certain oftentimes when we are facing uh, difficulties as certain uh, human beings that we might go uh, for refuge uh, to uh, certain uh, things. It certainly uh, could be uh, a church for some, could be a mosque for others, could be a sacred tree, yet certainly for others, or uh, maybe also uh, some mountains. Now, the Buddha in Dhammapada, verse 188, has certainly remarked when threatened with danger, men and women go to many a refuge, to mountains and forests, to parks and gardens, and to sacred trees. The following verse also applies, but such a refuge is not a safe refuge, not the best refuge. One is not liberated from all unwholesomeness of existence for having come to such a refuge. So 
if those new forms of refuge are not um, reliable and cannot be termed the best refuge, then what else is there? Well, the threefold refuge in which a retreatant puts his or her whole trust consists of the Buddha, the Dhamma and the Sangha, or at least one out of those three. The Buddha or the enlightened one is the teacher who by himself has discovered, has realized and proclaimed to the world the teachings of liberation. In praise of the Buddha we have those nine virtues that are being traditionally recited, namely the Blessed One is accomplished fully, perfectly enlightened, accomplished in true knowledge and conduct, fortunate knower of the world, unsurpassed leader of persons to be tamed, teacher of devas and humans, the enlightened one, the blessed one. The corresponding part in Pali starts with Itipiso Bhagava Araham Samasum Buddha Vijacharna Sampano Sugato Loka Vidu Anuttaro Purisadama Sarati Satadeva Manusanam Buddha Bhagava. Now, when it comes to the second refuge, we have the Dhamma, and the term, the Pali term Dhamma, can be retraced to the root Dhar and Satna, from which the verb Dhariti has been formed, and the term Dhamma then means that which uplifts, upholds, guards, protects, supports that which forms a foundation and upholds. Simply put, the liberation teachings of the Buddha qualify as Satna the Dhamma. And there are, of course, certainly many aspects that come under these liberation teachings, such as the training in virtue or in ethical conduct, the training in concentration and the training in wisdom. 
There are also you know, the four establishments of mindfulness, Jataru, Satipatthana, that uh, we will be practicing during this retreat. In praise of the Dhamma, traditionally its, its virtues are being mentioned, namely, the Dhamma is well expounded by the Blessed One, directly visible, immediate, inviting one to come and see, applicable, you know, to be personally experienced by the wise. So Swakato is the Pali term for being well proclaimed or well expounded. The Dhamma is said to be well proclaimed because it is good in the beginning, in the middle and certainly at the end. The Dhamma is referred to as Sanditiko as certainly being directly visible because it is visible here and now, it is empirical. Also, it has been referred to as certainly immediate or not delayed because it gives its certain fruit immediately next to its own occurrence. It is not confined to any particular time. The Dhamma is also referred to as Ehipasiko, namely inviting of inspection. That is, it is worthy of an invitation to inspect for oneself, to verify for oneself. It is said to be applicable opanehiko in the Pali scriptural language, namely, uh, or meaning onward leading, it is worth treating as one's shelter by realizing it. And finally, pachatam viditabhuvinyuhi, which means to be experienced by the wise. Now, the third refuge that is available is that of the Sangha. And the Sangha here referring to the community of disciples who have realized or are striving to realize the liberation teachings of the Buddha. In praise of Fatna, the community of practitioners, again a number of virtues are you know, being given in the text, and you know, those are the Sangha of the Blessed Ones, Satna you know, disciples, is practicing the good way, practicing the straight way, practicing the true way, practicing the proper way that is the four pairs of persons, the eight types of individuals 
this Sangha of the Blessed One's disciples is worthy of gifts, <coughs> sorry, worthy of hospitality, worthy of offerings, worthy of reverential salutation, the unsurpassed field of merit for the world. So Buddhadam and Sangha can be seen as three sources of inspiration and guidance. The Buddha is revered as the rediscoverer and teacher of liberating truths and furthermore as the embodiment of liberating qualities to be developed by others. The Dhamma is the teachings of the Buddhas, the path to the Buddhist goal and the various levels of realizations of this goal. And the Sangha is the community of the Noble Ones advanced practitioners who have experienced something of this goal, being symbolized on a more day-to-day -day level by the Buddhist monastic Sangha. Now, there are many instances reported in the texts of the Buddha in giving a discourse or engaging in a conversation and exploration with a group of people or not in an individual and in many cases you know, those certain people who had a chance to hear the Buddha were deeply touched by his profound uh, wisdom, by his words, and uh, then um, would naturally take refuge in uh, the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. One such example of taking refuge is Sigala, the young householder who is uh, the focus of the Sigalovada Sutta, a well-known discourse. So after the Buddha had suddenly given Sigalo uh, explanations uh, then uh, on how to uh, worship uh, properly, the uh, young householders uh, states, excellent, excellent, it is as if a man were to set upright that which was overturned or were to reveal that which was hidden or were to point out the way to one who had gone astray or were to hold a lamp amidst the darkness that those who have eyes may see. Even so, has the Dhamma been explained in various ways by the Exalted One. I take refuge in the Buddha, 
the Dhamma and the Sangha. May the Exalted One receive me as a lay follower, as one who has taken refuge from this very day to life's end. So in contrast to taking refuge in mountains, forests, parks, gardens, churches, mosques, and the like, in contrast to this, the Buddha offers taking refuge in the Buddha, in the Dhamma, and the Sangha. And in this regard, he remarks, as is stated in Dhammapada verses 102, Ninety one who takes refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma and the Sangha sees with noble insight the four noble truths, namely the truth of fitness suffering, the truth of the origin of suffering, the cessation of suffering and the noble eightfold path which leads to the cessation of suffering. And the Buddha goes on, as is recorded in Dhammapada verse 192, this, namely refuge in Buddha, Dhamma and Sangha, indeed is the safe refuge. This is the best refuge. Having come to this refuge, one is liberated from all suffering. So on occasion, when we face difficulties, in our meditation practice, you know, then it certainly would be the time you know, to remember how important it is, you know, namely, you know, to um, take refuge in the Buddha, in the Dhamma and the Sangha, to realize that one has you know, something you know, to rely on. Now, Mindfulness certainly meditation practice is done not just out there in a vacuum, but in a particular framework. And part of this framework is, as Marcia has mentioned already, the practice of noble silence. Another aspect of this is observing precepts. Namely, closely watching over one's bodily, verbal and certain mental conduct and ensuring that especially one's bodily and verbal conduct be of an ethical nature. Among the three trainings, namely the training in virtue in concentration and certain wisdom, 
the training in virtues mentioned first because it serves as a foundation for the remaining two trainings. Furthermore, the practice of an ethical conduct may consist of observing the five precepts, the eight precepts, or the ten precepts, or you know, the monastic vows. And this observance of the precepts will foster a basic purity, which will make progress along the path possible. Without observing ethical or, or ethical an ethical code of fitting conduct, we're likely to engage in actions that might not be all that skillful, and certainly those then will have repercussions on our own practice. Seelan could be said to be an effort to organize or to arrange one's bodily deeds, one's words, and one's thoughts in a skillful, in a wholesome way that then will be supportive to further uh, the further training in concentration and certain wisdom. So we're talking about uh, changing our conduct and if previously it wasn't all that ethical then you know, to ensure that it becomes increasingly ethical. Now We have earlier on recited and certainly with this certain taken the eight precepts, and we've done this certainly by uh, taking the short version of each precept. Now, the texts certainly contain, however, also a longer version of each certain precept and allow me to share this with you as there's some important aspects involved here. So usually when it comes to the short version of the precepts then those are expressed in negative wording as an abstention from this or that unwholesome uh, activity. However, each precept also has a positive um, counterpart to it, as we will uh, see in a moment. 
The Ngocha Nikai in its first volume, in section 211, states the following, namely, abandoning the destruction of life, I abstain from killing living beings with the rod and weapon laid aside, conscientious and kindly, I abide compassionate towards all living beings. So abandoning the destruction of life, that's certainly your negative aspect. This is what we're not supposed to do. With the rod and weapon laid aside, conscientious and kindly, I abide compassionate toward all living beings. This part highlights uh, the counter uh, uh, the counterpart, namely, um, which comes in the form of kindness and compassion, so as to be trembling for the welfare of others. The second precept also stated or given in the same passage of the Anguttara says, abandoning the taking of what is not given, I abstain from taking what is not given. This much is clear, is well known. Taking only what is given, expecting only what is given, and being honest at heart, devoid of theft. Now, this, the counterpart of the second precept is generosity and renunciation. In Buddhist culture, greed is strongly disapproved of and generosity much praised. So it's not just a matter of not taking what is not given, but it's also a matter of being generous, expressing our generosity towards certain other beings. Abandoning sexual activity, I observe celibacy, living apart, abstaining from sexual intercourse, the common person's practice. Now, the counterpart here comes, as is elucidated or explained in a different passage of the Nguchanikaya, namely volume 5, section 138, joyous satisfaction with one's spouse or partner, and furthermore, contentment and fewness of wishes. The Dhammapada Verse 204 speaks of contentment as a greatest of all wealths. The fourth precept states, abandoning false speech. I abstain from false speech. I speak truth, adhere to truth, am trustworthy and reliable. I'm not a deceiver of the world. Reference here is again to the first volume of the Nguchanikaya, section 212. Now, 
It's not only that we abstain from falsehood, from lying, but that we make every effort to speak what is truth, to adhere to truth, and certainly being trustworthy. So the counterpart of the fourth precept then is being honest, trustworthy, and dependable. The Buddha at one point certainly speaks of a bonds man or woman to truth. Even taking it as far as searching out and recognizing falsity and attaining precision of thoughts. The fifth precept, as certainly you will be well aware of, is abandoning liquor, wine and intoxicants basis for heedlessness. And here the counterpart to refraining from taking intoxicating substances is to develop mindfulness and clear comprehension. So we, rather than causing ourselves suddenly heedless or to be heedless, we will make every possible effort to develop mindfulness and clear comprehension. The long version of you know, the sixth precept, just to briefly mention this is abstaining from eating at night and outside the proper time. I take food only during one period of the day, namely the forenoon. And then, as certainly you uh, know, um, I abstain from dancing, singing, instrumental music and unsuitable shows and from adorning and beautifying myself by wearing garlands and applying scents and unguents. So on retreat, there's no need to impress others. There's no need to seek others' attention and certainly so, you know, we you know, try to uh, keep ourselves as certain simple as certain possible. Finally, you know, the eighth precept certain states I abstain you know, from the use of high and luxurious seats and certain beds. Here on the retreat, the most appropriate form of right speech comes in the form of noble silence. The celibacy then is the most appropriate form of right sexual conduct. And in terms of the sixth precept, moderation in eating will prevent drowsiness after a meal. So 
through the precepts, our normal conduct gets uh, refined, gets cultivated in certain ways that are helpful to the meditation practice. Now, the most important aim and benefit of observing an ethical code of conduct is that or is that of non-remorse, both as certainly the aim as well as certainly the uh, benefit. So by carefully observing an ethical code of conduct, we have nothing to criticize ourselves for, to blame ourselves for, and uh, as a result, uh, there is no need for remorse. Now, rightly so, the text certainly point out that observing precepts will lead to a form of happiness that is referred to in Pali as Anavaja Sukha. In English, this is a irreproachable happiness. And the very arising of happiness then has a significant consequence, namely that you know, then is the proximate cause for the arising of concentration and concentration being part of uh, what uh, we will be developing during this five week long retreat. Acting in accordance with the precepts is said to lead to confidence and a lack of fear. Furthermore, is said to lead to well-earned wealth, a good reputation, a peaceful death, and rebirth in a heavenly realm. Other benefits are there, but Satna will keep those for uh, later talks. The Venerable Sadhu Pandita of Fatna Burma, who recently passed away, had this certain to say about the importance of Fatna ethical conduct and Fatna practice. When doing a practice conducive to mental culture and the development of insight, purity of conduct in speech and action is essential. If conduct is not pure, the mind is not pure. If the mind is not pure, it cannot be cultivated and insight cannot develop. A tree cannot bear fruits and develop them if the branches are broken or withered. Likewise, if the branches of morality are broken or withered, it cannot bear 
the fruits of noble path and fruition and develop them. Now, during our uh, retreat here, you know, there are certain activities that uh, the elder you know, Sariputta, as well as Satna of the Buddha, have identified as Satna being obstacles you know, to you know, spiritual practice. And let me just briefly mention those, and Satna, we can go into further details uh, in forthcoming demodogs, namely work, talk, sleep, company, bonding, and prolific conceptualization. During this retreat, let us make a concerted effort to practice with the greatest care and respect, or maybe you know, differently put, you know, with a devotion to our practice. Nothing is more important than our practice. Now, you've come, some of you have come from far away places you've traveled over many hours and you will surely be pretty tired and so I will not go into the meditation instructions in great detail. This will be done tomorrow morning so we'll meet here again and so for now let me state just you know, the very, very you know, basics of the Satipatthana instructions accord, in accordance with you know, the teachings given by the Venerable Mahasi Sayadaw based on the teachings of you know, the Buddha. And so, so we try to be mindful in the sitting meditation, in the walking meditation, during the general activities of whatever predominant object naturally arises in the body and satna in the mind. We try to label that respective object, we try to observe it as best as we can in an objective manner, not identifying with it. And suddenly then we try to know the nature, the qualities, the characteristics, specifics of Fatna, that particular object. In the sitting meditation, the primary object is you know, the rising falling movement of the abdomen. So when uh, the abdomen uh, rises, you know, then you know, we focus our attention on it, we label it as uh, you know, rising, we try to observe that rising movement of the abdomen from start to finish, and we try to know its nature. The same thing goes for the falling movement of the abdomen, as well as you know, for pains and aches that might come up, for the thinking you know, that might come up, thinking, remembering, planning, and uh, various mental states, joy, happiness, tiredness, restlessness, and so on and so forth. So apart from uh, 
moment to moment mindfulness and please try also to perform all activities as slowly as possible and also try to restrain your senses as much as possible. So rather than looking here and there, try to keep your eyes downcast, focus them at a point maybe three to four meters ahead of you and you will see that this will help your practice. It will help to develop concentration based on this. It will help to develop intuitive wisdom. Now, since the time is already quite advanced, allow me you know, to stop and certain at this point and certain wishing or right now concluding that uh, may what has been said certainly. Uh, at certain the outset certainly by Marcia in giving some of the important supports and what has also been said with regard to the three refuges and then the importance of and certain related aspects. May you take all of this to heart, may you apply this to your practice time and certain again with care and respect, with devotion and may this lead to deepening of your practice and certain may then much wisdom arise and may that wisdom turn into liberating wisdom. And this is it for now.